Hey Loam listeners, this is Kate, the creative director of Loam. Before we dive into a new episode of Loam Listen with Amiria Freeman, I want to share with you all about the launch of our Patreon. As you all know, Loam is a small and heart-powered organization passionate about creating immersive, responsive, and regenerative media that sparks a culture shift. To sustain our work and to fully actualize our vision, we are humbly asking for support from our community to continue to compensate our creative contributors, produce Loam Listen, and expand our publishing branch. As a subscriber to our Patreon, your donation of just $4 a month, the cost of a cup of coffee, can help Loam show up stronger for our beautiful community. To learn more about our Patreon, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com loamlove. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com L-O-A-M, love. Thank you again so much for being a part of this community. We're so grateful to be in conversation with you all. Hi there. I'm Amiria Freeman, and you're listening to Loam Listen. Here in the United States, we're a few weeks removed from the most recent presidential election and a few days away from a national holiday deeply rooted in the idea of hope. Right now, we're at a confluence of collective energy that is begging us to consider our roots and origins. Many of us have recently devoted time to considering how we arrived on the other side of a contentious election season, provoking a collective look back at all the normalized violences that have nurtured our nation. Many of us are also finding new ways to celebrate old Thanksgiving traditions, urging us to get real on the roots of the holiday and the familial roots that bind us to annual acts of commuting and gathering. It's safe to say we're a nation deeply engaged in an act of origin foraging. In this episode, I talk all things chai and roots with Farah Jasani. Farah started her company, One Stripe Chai, with the simple goal of bringing chai back to its South Asian roots after realizing that the chai being served in coffee shops was nothing like what she grew up with at home. Since its inception, One Stripe Chai has evolved into a South Asian beverage company that continues to reintroduce classic South Asian drinks, such as Howdy Dude. Farah's goal is to use One Stripe as a platform to reclaim the drinks that reflect her South Asian heritage and upbringing. Through exploring the textured history of chai, Farah and I chat about the power of returning to and honoring our roots, and we also chat about the messiness of foraging for our origins and what we risk when we fail to remember the source of who and what we come from. Farah brings a wealth of expertise and a potent reverence for her background that provide permission for all of us to reflect on that which has birthed us. Oh my gosh, Farah, welcome to Loam. Listen, how are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm so excited to talk to you today. 
I'm such a fan of you and I'm such a fan of the work that you do with One Stripe Chai. And I'm super excited to like dive into this idea of origins and roots with you. I feel like with One Stripe Chai, there's such a beautiful, potent, intentional um, recognition that like origins and roots are so vital and so important. And I'm just thinking that in this moment, we're all at home, which for many of us is like sort of a site of where we come from, those beginnings. Um, so I think for a lot of us, we are thinking about all these themes so much. And I'm so excited to talk to you about how you sort of think through origins and roots. And what can we learn when we sort of go back to the beginning, when we sort of go back to where we came from and where what we come from? Um, and then also thinking through, especially in this moment, what happens when we don't do that work? What happens when we uproot things? What happens when we sort of erase histories, erase context, erase roots and origins? So, and I think this is all going to be so potent because we are in a sort of a really contentious election season. And I think we're all having conversations about like how exactly we got here. And we're having a lot of conversations about the roots and origins of the U.S. and all these normalized biases that sort of created, you know, the situation that we're in right now. So, but before we do all of that, for the benefit of the listeners, who are you and what do you do? So... My name is Farah Jasani. Um, I am the founder of a chai company called One Strike Chai. We started out in 2015. Um, and really the goal of One Stripe was to bring a better option for chai. And now over the last few years, it's evolved to become more of, um, it's kind of turning into more of a South Asian beverage company. And, you know, in line with the theme of this podcast, um, a way for me to kind of, bring my roots back and share my culture and share the things that happened in my home growing up um, with the rest of the world. And in a way that, you know, there's, I just felt like I saw a lot of things that I related with in a very intimate way, not being represented the way that I felt was, um, was correct or where it didn't feel like it was the right representation. And so I almost feel like starting One Stripe was a way for me to selfishly also learn more about my identity and who I am within the context of being um, a Muslim woman who is also, you know, Indian um, and a child of immigrants and now living in the U.S. So, um, which is a melting pot. So really like, how do you represent, how do I represent the things that I grew up with and the things that I consider my culture? Um, and yeah, and that's, that's, that's what I do. <laughs> no. And I'm so excited to like dive into like all those different bits and threads and pieces, but I just want to start off like with a really foundational question. And that question is what is chai mean for you? I feel like there's so many different definitions of what what chai is and so many different people across the world throughout time have had really different relationships to this one thing. So for you, how do you define chai and how has chai sort of like functioned in your life? What are some of your earliest memories involving it and what does it mean for you just like as a person? What's our relationship like? Yeah, so at a very like basic level the word chai just means tea um in hindi and um that's what i grew up hearing that's what i also speak at home and um like even when my mom you know when we think of the 
the word chai, we think of the finished drink chai. Um, but even the word for tea is actually just chai. So if it was just the actual tea that my mom wanted from me, she would ask me for the chai. She wanted the finished drink. She would also ask me for the chai. So that was something I realized um, a few years ago when we were kind of I, I we were talking a lot about like chai means tea, so you shouldn't say chai tea because it's redundant. It's not offensive or anything. It's just it's it's a point of education that hey, chai actually just means tea, so you don't need to, you know, you don't need to say pizza bread. Like you don't you don't need to say things like that because you don't have to. So like let's be efficient with our time. Um, and so during that time, I was like, well, really, like when I think of the word chai, what do I think of? And I'm like, oh yeah, like even like tea, like just the tea leaves, we call them chai. So really, really down to its core just means tea. Um, from like a, like in a deeper way, I, I have had a weird relationship with chai. So when I was very little, um, chai was that drink where all the adults would drink the chai and you're like, what's that? It smells good. I want it. Can I have some? Um, and you weren't allowed to drink it. And so it was, you know, it's caffeine. It's a hot drink. Like just when you're really little, like I wasn't allowed to have it. I still remember my memories of my first cup of chai. And I don't remember how old I was, maybe like five, six years old. And we had a little amber teacup set, a little cup and saucer. And it was amber and clear, very, would be very cool in looking right now. I feel like it really fit in with the vibe of today, really vintage looking. Um, and, and so the way we would drink it is my mom would give me just a little bit, like I would get just a little bit. And I would, I was taught to pour it into the saucer. And this is how a lot of people drink their chai is you pour it into the saucer that helps cool it down. And then you slurp it up with your saucer. And that was my earliest kind of memory. And then growing up at my house, we, my mom and my dad made chai twice a day. So um, every day, there's, there's not a day at my parents' house that chai is not made. Um, if that happened, work would not get done and they would not function. Um, it's, it's insane. And, and it's funny because my chai is like this weird drink that I feel like almost um, kind of goes beyond even like gender roles in a sense that I feel like it's almost like everybody, no matter who you are, if you're in a chai drinking household, you know how to make chai. It's not, uh, it's not something that's like, um, only my mom makes chai. My dad doesn't make it. Um, my dad doesn't cook, but he knows how to make chai because God forbid my mom's out of town. He needs to know how to make his chai. Like that's how serious it is. And, and, and I love that about it because I feel like there's no, there's no real, like, even when you go to India and you see street vendors, um, really like well-known street vendors, they're often, they're often men. And, and it's not this like very, like compared to a lot of other kind of gender roles that we put around, like in the, in the kitchen, um, chai kind of goes beyond that and anyone and everyone can make chai. Um, and I also feel like what I love about it is it's very anti-elitist. You're never looking for the most expensive or the fanciest cup of chai. You're almost kind of always looking for like the, like the, the average every man's chai, the, 
you're kind of looking like on the street corner for like that bodega chai. You're not really looking for like, you know, high tea or anything when you're going, when when you're going for chai. And I love that about it because it's, it's accessible to everyone. And I think like when I was growing up, like chai was always around at our mosque. Chai was like the water cooler. Like that was where like you hung out, like, oh, I'll meet you at the chai. Um, And we would get it in little styrofoam cups at our mosque which now is like not, it's not okay to have styrofoam, but back then styrofoam was the thing. <laughs> and so that, that was kind of like where like, you know, we would, we would hang out and like, it was kind of like, you know, we were at mosque, like we weren't, we weren't going out, you know, partying or anything. And it was like, our drink of choice was the chai and we would dip, you know, Ritz crackers and we would dip like, you know, you had your special cookies that went with your chai and you had your special snacks, depending on like, you know, what part of like South Asia you're from, like, what are you eating with your chai? And, you know, and no matter whose house you went to, there were, they would always serve you chai, whether you wanted it or not. Like it just, it was like a part of the thing. Like it's a welcome package when you, when you come, when you get to someone's house. And, um, and I never really thought twice about like, what is chai? It was just really like, this is his drink. It's delicious. Like great. And in college was when I got into coffee and started drinking a lot of coffee. Um, and really got into like really bad, like just all the really sugary stuff. And it, it was, it was just like, you know, I was like Starbucks, Java chip Frappuccino all day, every day. And I felt like I kind of lost touch with chai because I didn't, I didn't drink it in college ever. Um, and, and the one time, the only time I would ever get chai is at Starbucks, I would get the Oprah chai. Um, and not, that wasn't because it tasted like chai. That was just because it was a good drink to drink. Um, it, to me, didn't taste anything like chai. And I think like as I grew older, just becoming more of an adult, I felt like I was like, oh, I remember chai. Like I want to make it at home. Like my, my like my parents aren't here to like make it for me. Like I'm living out on my own. Um, and I kind of got back into chai. And I, my first job, I lived in New York and like I would make my own chai at home. And it, it's really kind of, there's a learning curve. There's, there's, there's so many different recipes. There's no perfect one. And it's so different from home to home. And when I got into specialty coffee, I felt like I couldn't relate to coffee. I have no, I have no roots with coffee. Um, my parents didn't drink coffee when I was younger. They, nobody drank it at home. Um, I, I was just never around it. And as soon as I kind of realized that, realized that there was this disconnect in this niche where chai wasn't being represented the way I thought it should be represented, it was like immediately like, whoa, I feel like this like kinship to chai. Like it's, it's my thing. And I, and I want to be somebody who like represents it and looking around in like the industry, I just felt like nobody that was making chai looked like me. No, that was incredible. And no, this say thank you so much for walking us through sort of that your journey with like chai and how you've related to it from like growing up in your childhood home to, you know, getting older, going to college, um, living and working in New York. And I really love what you said about chai being sort of like this like very universal, democratic, easily accessible, um, food staple thing that um, something that anyone can consume, that anybody can make. Um, the point that it's so normalized, we're kind of like, I never really thought about what chai meant to me because it was just something that was there. And 
love to learn more about um, sort of what have you seen as far as like how chai has been adopted in a very like American Western context? Because you did mention that like a part of sort of your rekindling your kinship with chai was through sort of seeing that like it wasn't being represented in a way that you thought was um, true and spirited. So can you talk about more about how have you seen chai being represented in that way? And um, what does that do to you? And for me, I kind of think about chai as being like, I don't know, something like close to turmeric that sort of that, that's been elevated to this place of like a very goopy Gwyneth Paltrow wellness industrial complex place and so it does feel like it's been lifted from like this democratic non-elitist space to being something that's very elitist and that's very sort of like a part of like this lifestyle of I'm healthy and I'm fit and I'm fitting into like a very um non-accessible very toxic idea of like what does it mean to be well um so yeah like how have you sort of confronted um this sort of like new understanding your relationship to try compared to the one that you cultivated from a very young age? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I, I still remember the moment where I realized, wow, um, what is going on here? And why is Chai, why, what's going on with Chai? Um, and I, I was, I came to Portland to learn about specialty coffee because I just, I was very interested in it. And, um, more than anything, I was, I was interested in like the supply chain and like, wh- why is coffee so expensive? And like, wh- what's really happening here? Like, what is specialty coffee? What is craft coffee? And um, I remember learning a lot about coffee and being like, I was genuinely like, wow, like a lot of work goes into coffee. And like, I'm only seeing like the post farm part of it. I'm not even seeing all the like, you know, the the first, the front end of it. And I remember going to a very, very well-known coffee shop, um, of a well-known coffee company. And I, I learned, and I never used to order chai at coffee shops because I could just make my own. Um, and so I wasn't going to spend $6 on a chai that someone else made that probably wasn't going to taste as good as mine. So I, I, you know, I would never order chai. And I remember being at this coffee shop and being like, you know, they make amazing coffee. They care so much. I know, I know that they care so much about every single bean, every roast. They care about how the shot is pulled. Like they care so much about coffee. Their chime must be delicious. Um, because to them, they put so much care into every cup of coffee that there's no way that chai is going to be just a line item on their menu. Like it's also going to shine. Um, and they're going to put that much care into it. And I remember going up and I ordered a chai and the barista made it and he, he put it down in front of me. And before I could pick it up, he picked up a little shaker of, I don't know if it was cinnamon or nutmeg and just doused the entire drink. And I was like, that's weird. Why did she just do that? And I, I went and I took it and I sat down. I have like a photographic memory of this. And I remember taking a sip and immediately like, oh, it's because this tastes like nothing. This drink tastes like absolutely nothingness. Um, I can't taste any tea. It's like white in color. So I don't know like if this is just steamed milk with cinnamon, which by the way, like steamed milk with cinnamon is delicious, but like it's not chai. So <laughs> I could see why people 
would get hooked to something like that, but that's not try. Um, and I was like, I don't taste any spices in here. Um, I don't really taste anything. And I remember all the kind of thoughts that went into my mind. Um, there was a little bit of like anger. There was a little bit of feeling sad. I felt like often, especially being in a place like Portland, um, which is not very diverse, I felt like a lot of people's first experience of chai might be in a coffee shop. And so this is the moment, this is the place where a person that has no experience of chai may meet this product for the first time. And this is, this is not what their first experience should be. Um, and I also felt like kind of angry because I was like, well, people are just passing on this amazing drink as this like very subpar drink as chai. And, and, and I think chai is really important because, you know, my parents are from India. And so, you know, just isolating that country out of all of South Asia this it's a really big country there's 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 a lot of people and there's a lot of different languages and what i found is every time i've gone to india no matter where i go in india even if i can't speak the language that's spoken in that region or in that state i can order chai and and i will get chai like there's no like i feel like it's such a uniter and it's and as i said said earlier it's it's pretty accessible as far as i know so like to me, I was like, okay, wait, there's, there's like a billion people in the world drinking this. And this corner in Portland here is representing this really poorly. Like why? Um, and I remember I was working at a coffee shop. So I went to my manager and I was like, why is it chai so bad everywhere? Like, what do we do here? Um, and really what I realized was that coffee shops don't have stovetops. So they, they only have the espresso machine. And so they only have the steam wand, right? So they don't, they don't really have a way to make a whole pot of chai and serve it fresh. Um, so they have to use a concentrate or they have to use some kind of mix to be able to make it quickly for, you know, to be able to like get it to customers quickly. It's like, okay, that's interesting. Why is there not a good option for a concentrate or a, um, or like a mix of any kind. And, and that's really what One Stripe was trying to do was create something where, you know, something that I felt was lacking was I felt like the tea never shined in any of the concentrates that I tried. And I think personally that, and this is my personal opinion, I think that the tea is the most, it's the foundation of chai and it's the most important part. And it's also the most controversial part because also amidst all of this, people often, and what I've seen in the West is that I would see chai companies talk about chai as if this is a centuries old Indian drink. And it's not, it's not centuries old. It's not possible because chai as a recreational drink didn't exist like pre like the 1800s even. Um, and, and that's something that I had to learn a lot more about also, but I just remember being like, well, like, you know, tea came from China and the British are the ones who really brought tea to India. And, you know, pre-British, it was growing wild, but it wasn't, you know, at most, I think maybe it was like a medicinal thing um, and only in certain parts of India where it could grow wild um, was, you know, the indigenous population maybe using the leaves for like herbals and things like that. There was no drink 
you know, like the way what chai looks like now. Um, and it definitely wasn't like, you know, commercialized. And so, you know, the British, th there's this like contention around like the fact that the British brought tea to India for their own personal selves, right? Because China had a monopoly on tea for a long time and everyone knows that the British love their tea. And so I think it was just, you know, in with all the research that I've done, Britain really just kind of was like, well, let's steal some tea plants and we have this huge population. We they, there's some areas in this in the, this colony that we have where tea can flourish and you know we can't grow tea in Britain, so let's bring it here and let's set up plantations and we have cheap labor, so why not get them to work on these plantations essentially? And let's kind of create a sense of like indentured servitude and just grow the stuff so we can control the price of it and we can send it back home. And then the second step to it was, hey, why don't we just sell it to the people here also? And it's a caffeinated drink, right? So how do you get, how do you get, how does the colonizer get the colonized to get hooked on a product that they're creating for the colonized? It, it's, there, there's a lot of really, uh, a lot of layers to it and as you know the child of an immigrant in america um, amidst everything going on and also being you know a muslim woman in a mostly you know hindu country and trying to reconcile all these things where i'm like you know who am i and like what what does what did what did um what does the british colonization and partition of india really mean for that country and like how have the implications of that kind of followed through in like social ways and you know even in commercial ways when it comes to like this tea as a commodity Ooh, that was incredible and again i'm just like oh my god i feel like you could literally teach like a college level course on this because like chai this thing that you said is so accessible so democratic that seems so temp uh, simple um is so rich and layered and colored and there's so many threads that we can pull away from it um but i think one thing that's really resonating with me from what you just said is sort of you mentioned all of your identities and i'm thinking about um this like du bois idea of like when you're black and american you're sort of operating from like a place of like double consciousness and i feel like you're operating from a place of like multiple modes of consciousness just like all these different lenses and i think when you have multiple lenses um that makes the process of looking at roots looking at origins um, I think really messy and really complicated. And now I'm thinking about Chai and I'm sort of thinking about through one lens, if we look back at its origins, look back at its roots, there's sort of this really dark history, right? Like this is something that's coming out of a history and a violence of colonialism on the part of like the British and India um, occupying that area of the world. And then just like in a more modern context, we're thinking about Chai and looking back at its roots and its origins also through like your multiple modes of consciousness there's also this sense of like oh but chai in a lot of ways is sort of like being uprooted from those roots and those origins and like in certain regions of the u.s and the west it's being represented in like a really um and i don't want to say inauthentic because we could get into a whole other conversation about authenticity and food ways um but i'm just going to use it here to just get to my point um 
but it's being written in a way that isn't authentic. And I want to get someone to start trying to talk about that because that's such a critical part of this conversation. But I do want to know for you, um, how do you sort of grapple with the messiness of Chai? How do you sort of celebrate Chai and honor it in all the ways that it is such an integral part of so many people's lives while also recognizing it's like really dark roots? And then also for you, how do you sort of like deal and grapple with like the very real violence of Chai being represented in ways that um, does sort of divorce Chai from its roots and divorce Chai from like real, again, quote unquote, authentic representations of what it truly is and can be. How do you grapple with the messiness? Because it is so messy. Yeah, you're so right. And honestly, I don't have a perfect answer for that because it's already hard enough for, I think, women of color to be business owners in general, um, for women in general to be business owners. And so it's really, I try to kind of put like blinders on sometimes where I'm like, it's really easy to get like, um, when I looked around the industry and I was like, well, who's doing chai? I felt like, okay, there's nobody that looks like me doing chai. there's a lot of white women doing chai. Um, and that to me was really confusing because I was like, but why? Um, and, and it, and it felt weird. I was like, well, that just feels, that feels weird. Like, why would you choose to do that drink? And often like the, the, um, backstory was like, oh, well, I went to India, like on a trip and I had a lot of chai and I really liked it. And I brought it and I was like, okay, I grew up drinking chai my whole life and I still don't know if I'm honoring it perfectly. So like, so, okay. I mean, sure. Like I, I, um, it's hard. It's weird. It's, it's hard to kind of see people who may have no connection with the drink get farther than you sometimes. But I, I try to keep, try to keep like blinders on where I'm like, you know, no matter what anyone else is doing, like, we want to educate people. So that's like one thing is like, how can we educate people? Um, how can we show people that brown women can also own chai companies? And, you know, and how can we, through the ingredients and through our sourcing practices, like how can we educate our customers on like, you know, our, our chai concentrate, the sweetened one has jaggery in it. That was very intentional. Um, the reason we use it is because nobody knows what jaggery is. And we use jaggery all the time in a lot of foods. And so when it came to like choosing a sweetener, there was, Hey, like people don't really drink chai with jaggery. Like it's now becoming a thing because it's kind of healthier, but really like my parents were never putting jaggery in their chai. They were using it in food. Um, But for me, I was like, here's an ingredient nobody knows about. How do we teach people about what jaggery is? And how do we make that a household name? Just like, just like a bunch of other things are household names. Like for me, it's like, if people are getting into like ashwagandha and like, they're able to pronounce all these things, like you, they're, people are open to learning all kinds of things. And so I'm like, well, why not use this as an educational moment to like also talking, talk about like sourcing. So like one of my biggest, one of my biggest goals was to be able to direct source RT. And, and I'm not going to lie, like, there's a lot of privilege in what I do, right? So like, it's not like, there's privilege in being able to like, 
one, start your own business. And then two, like be able to grow it enough that you can like go to source. And like, that's, that's definitely not something that like, um, that is just like, you know, everyone can do that. And, and, and I definitely, I see that I hold space for that. I, I, I try to keep that on my mind as like, you know, this is coming out of a space of privilege. So, um, I'm, you know, lucky that I'm able to talk about this and I want to make sure that I am representing it the way that I think is, that I, that I think is, you know, representative of everyone that enjoys this drink. And also like our chai is my experience of chai. It is by no means the chai. It is not, you know, this is the way chai is supposed to taste and there's no other way. There's, that's, that's just like, I would be, I would be crazy if I was trying to, you know, be like, this is the only way, which is why I think it's important that you said, if we talk about authenticity, I mean, we could go in so many different directions because what is authentic to me may not be authentic to somebody else. Um, so in a way, I will say another way that I grappled with it is that even though most people doing chai when I got into this industry didn't look like me, I do appreciate the fact that they educated America on what chai means. So that was work that I didn't have to do. Um, and so at the very least, at the very like, you know, basic level, like most people here are familiar with the word chai. They know it has something to do with tea. And so what I, I, I will be like, give gratitude and be like, thank you for doing the education. Now let me come in and show them how it really tastes. And so that's, that's, that's kind of how I grapple with it where I'm like, okay, well, I've been giving an opportunity and how are we gonna, how are we gonna, you know, at the end of the day, like America is a capitalist country, which is, you know, anyone can start a business and slap a brand on it and we're we're all allowed to do that right so um I there's there's just so many parts of it right like there's some I'm like ah oh, this is annoying but I'm like but you know you have a successful business like you're allowed to um yeah I think the part about uprooting is it's very interesting I I try to as much as our business can and one stripe is you know it's growing and that's that's wonderful but I want to make sure that we as we grow, we have the, we have the right partners and we are very intentional about, um, who we work with. And so the farm that we source our tea from is not a really large farm. It's a fairly like mid-sized farm and it's, it's a fourth generation farm. And I wanted to make sure that I knew what kind of, uh, farming practices they have. So they do organic and biodynamic tea and um which is great i love that and like being at the farm like i could see what they were doing like you know there it was like these are the inputs that go into it and this is fresh cow dung that is now needed and then they're gonna make a um a fertilizer with this and getting to learn all that was cool because i feel like i like nerding out about tea and the history of tea in india if you can't tell and the farm we work with you know the the great granddaughter of the family and her brother who are, you know, they're our age. Um, they're young people. They, they were interested in kind of working in the family business and, you know, she's the one who kind of convinced the family to start doing organic and biodynamic practices. So for me, it's like, if my contact is a South Asian woman, like 
and you're the person telling everyone what to do. Like, I want to work with you. Like, there aren't many women in the tea industry. Like, I remember when we were on a sourcing trip and we went to a bunch of different farms and one of the farms we went to, um, and this is another layer of it, right? Is like also being like a woman is, is in the Indian tea industry. You just don't see that. You see a lot of older men and um, it's a very ancient industry, like not very like tech savvy and stuff. And I remember going to a farm that was a larger farm and the manager on that farm. And it's, it's weird when you're there, right? Because all the homes are like these old British bungalows. And so you're like, where am I? Like, it's like very like, okay, this is very interesting. And I remember this manager, like the sweetest man, but for the life of him would not talk to me directly um, and would only field questions to my husband and would only talk to my husband. And it, it was really weird because I, you know, my husband's, you know, he helps out, but he's not really like a full time part of the company. And so I just remember being like, why won't, like, why does he just keep talking to you as if this is your company? And like, I'm just trailing behind y'all, like what's happening. And we just kind of realized that like, he just wasn't comfortable with it because he had never come across like a woman who was, you know, it just, it, it was this comfort level that hadn't met there. So like on so many layers, like there's a lot of different things to grapple with, but I think it's exciting. And I think it's, um, it's a challenge. And I think that it is an experience that, you know, I get to share. Um, and if we get to be a good part of that world and we get to be a good part of that connection where people in America are able to have our chai and read something about our story and kind of learn something new, I think that's really awesome. And that's, that's um, more than what I could ask for. Oh, thank you for that. And thank you for giving us a little bit of insight into the sourcing part of One Strike. I think for me, that's such an interesting part of all of this. And I think it's like the perfect segue. I feel like I buried the lead on this, but let's talk about One Strike Chai and how you went from working, living in on the East Coast, living in the PNW, getting your old site, this barista internship program and like starting this amazing company. How did that come about? And you mentioned sort of like the importance of sourcing your material uh, ingredients from like um, very specific places and being really thoughtful and visibilizing that labor. And I would love to know more in addition to just the orange story of One Stripe. Why was it so important for you to go about this sourcing journey? And how did you go about starting that journey? That's a great question that I feel like nobody ever asks me. And I think it's, um, it's definitely really interesting. And I think I have some things I could share about it. But um, so I was living in New York. I was an IT consultant. I worked in like insurance and then just like it just life was boring. It was like really stressful, but really boring. And I was like, well, if I'm going to be really stressed out, then like it better be for something that's not boring and something that I care about. And I was, I, I got inspired by somebody who had, who had opened up their own like beautiful coffee shop in Atlanta that I had visited. And um, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And like, I could do this too. And, you know, and really I just, it didn't take long for me to just quit my job. And I was like, I don't know, the world is my oyster. Where should I go? And 
Portland was a place that I had never been to. I didn't know anyone there. I just kind of was like, I've heard it's cool and people have told me I would like it. And there's a lot of coffee there. So like, why not? Um, and, and my goal was like, okay, well, I don't really, I like coffee, but do, do I really want like to work in coffee? Like, I don't know, but let me go there. Let me learn, let me learn how to barista. Let me see if I can, someone will hire me and I can work for free. Like, I just want to learn. Um, and that's how I kind of got into it. And then one stripe started and then I just kind of stayed here when it comes to like, I would say like when we started formulating the concentrate as a first product, a lot of intention went into it. So I felt like as soon as like, like let's work on this chai product, not to sell it to anybody. It was just like, let's, let's develop this concentrate for this coffee shop that we're at. Um, and I just remember being like up all night thinking about like, well, like what does my aunt put in chai? And like, like what, what is the one? Cause the way our, our chai is that our concentrates are made is they use six spices. I don't know anybody that uses six spices in their chai. Like it is, it is not meant to be reflective of like making chai on a pot. It is supposed to be a water-based concentrate that is as flavorful while being as balanced and as delicious as possible. And it's really hard to do when you have a water-based concentrate. Um, and one thing was like, oh, the tea is not right. The tea that everyone's using is, um, is too weak. And, the, and the, the first thing that I knew was like, okay, well, the tea that I use at home and the tea that my mom uses at home is not a full leaf tea. It is a granular tea. Um, and so that was the first kind of thing like that I realized. I was like, I think people are using the wrong tea. Um, and the type of tea that you use typically for chai, it's called a CTC tea. So it's, so it's cut, tear, curl. That's the method of processing. Um, and it was a method that I think was developed in like the early mid 1900s. So like not that long ago. Um, and it was when, when tea became really popular in India, it became this method of like, really there's these giant metal rollers that are really heavy and they cut, tear and curl the, the tea leaves. And so the tea that we use for chai at home and that we use for one stripe is not, it's not a full leaf. It's not pretty. It's, it's just a granular, it's like little granular balls. And I remember being like, oh yeah, my, the chai my mom uses is like not really that pretty. When you see like a lot of tea blends, you see all these like pretty leaves and stuff. And they tend to have like these delicate flavors, right? Like they have flavor notes and they're, they're just, they're pretty and they're light. And that's not the tea that you need for chai because chai you boil with milk and then you throw some spices in there. Like you need something that can be, that can hold against all this like abrasive stuff happening to it. Um, and you're also going to put sweetener in it. So like really you need something multi robust, you need something bold and that's what CTCT is. So like with CTC, like there's something about it being granular, the way it's processed. Um, and it's not even the, it's not even the highest, like it might be a high grade of tea and it might be organic, but it's not the fanciest part of the tea. It's not, it's not the stuff that people are paying the big bucks for. It's kind of the cheaper stuff. And, and that really makes sense, right? Because chai became this household thing and suddenly it was like, well, how can everyone afford it? So like, it's, it's kind of like affordable tea that's not so pretty. 
Um, and so I was like, well, we got to use CTCT. That was like, that was the first thing. Very intentional about the tea. We did not direct source at the time because we couldn't afford to. We just weren't, we didn't have the quantities. Um, and I honestly had no idea how you even do something like that. So we went to the Indian store and I just bought all of the boxes of tea that um, I knew my mom used. And so every like other week or so I would go to the Indian store and buy all of their tea of this one brand and I would buy all of their jaggery and I feel like they would just be like are you having a tea party like you're here so often she's back for more tea and jaggery and that was that was a tea um with our spices really we use six spices because that was where we felt like we got the most amount of flavor um just because with water, it's it's really hard to like really pull all that flavor. Um, but the thing that was important to me was that we had we had a good basis of cardamom because in my in in my experience, everyone I knew, if they didn't, they maybe put ginger, but they maybe don't put ginger. They they maybe put like clove, but they maybe don't. But everybody puts cardamom, um, and I wanted it to be spicy because I really like a really good masala like chai so like lots of spices lots of flavor so that's why we use black pepper because we're like we want to give it that like that like spicy flavor um and then the jaggery was because it was like well i don't know nobody knows what jaggery is it's such a great way to educate people um and one day maybe we'll be able to source our own jaggery and that would be really cool um and the honey was because very intentionally we use honey because you know the community in Portland and the Pacific Northwest is really local focused and no part of our product was local. You can't source any of these products locally. And so we live in the Pacific Northwest and the honey here is some of the best honey. And so we were like, well, we have to use, we have to use honey because we didn't want to use raw table sugar, but we don't want to use just plain table sugar. Um, we want to be intentional about the types of sweeteners we used as well and so that's kind of how it came about but it really mattered to me that it was well balanced so like I didn't want anyone to taste it and feel like this is too spicy or this is too sweet I just wanted them to feel like it's spicy and it's sweet like it's a good balance also wanted to have good body so like I think the honey and the jaggery together just gave a lot of body to the to the drink um which was exciting and then kind of same with our branding. Like I wanted to be, I wanted one stripe to be very approachable. Like how do we make chai approachable to the average person? And so one thing was, I was like, well, I don't want any like cliche Indian designs and like paisley and stuff. Cause I was like, that's, it's just a lot of people are going to feel like I'm, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. And it's not so much about comfort, but really like it's, it might not be approachable. And I was like, well, I also don't want it to be like, you know, back in like 2015, you had this like incredibly like hipster apothecary vibe. And like, sometimes that feels really unapproachable to the average person. Cause you're like, that looks expensive. Like, I don't, I don't know if I could afford that. I don't feel comfortable with it. Um, and so what we really wanted was something kind of in between a bottle that would look great in the fanciest coffee shop ever, but also um, would look great in a mom and pop. And so really wanted it to be approachable. And 
I, I think we did that. Like, I, I think that we were able to kind of create that environment with it. Um, but you know, my first biggest goal was sourcing. So with sourcing, I had no idea what to do. Like I, how do you source tea? Like, how do you, how do you even do that? And I feel like really it was kind of growing in the community and like, and asking around in our networks, like, does anybody know anybody who could help us? Um, our turmeric blend, our Hollywood, the turmeric there is sourced from Diaspora Co. And Diaspora um, is owned by an awesome woman named Sana. And she and I became pretty good friends when she first started the company. And she's the one who introduced me to the, the tea farm that we work with now. And so that was great because Sana, you know, when I met her, I was like, can you, you're sourcing all these awesome spices from all over India. Can you keep like a lookout for like a tea farm and someone that we can source good tea from? And so she was just kind of always like keeping that out for me. Um, and then I was just asking everyone that I met, like, hey, do you know anybody like that, that like imports good tea, like that direct sources and my husband had gone to grad school with somebody whose family owned tea farms in Assam, India. And so we reached out to him and he was like, yeah, like, you know, when you go to India, like, please go visit like these two farms. Like, and, and so that's kind of how we did it. And that was it. And, and really like, I don't really know how to make that into like a prescriptive method, but I think really it's, it's a lot of just like asking anyone and everyone, how do you do this? And how do you find a farm and how do you find a partner? And I feel like when you find the right partner, like for us, it worked out perfectly. Like I, I can WhatsApp, you know, the people that run the farm we work with and be like, Hey, like there's a lot of flooding I've heard. Like, is everything okay? Is everyone on the farm? Okay. Also when we were in India on that sourcing trip, like we asked them a million questions. And I mean, like, like really pick their brain, not only about like from an agricultural standpoint of like, how does this work and how do you do this and like um, whatnot, but also like, what are the labor laws here? And like, you know, tea is technically kind of unionized in India. Like, what does that really mean? And like, you know, some things are good things. Some things are not so great things. Some things are great for the farm workers. Some things are great for the farm owners. And so really like getting to understand like, and also like, how did your grandfather start this farm? Like, how, how did this work? Did he inherit it? Did he buy it? Did he start it himself? Like, what is, what is your family's kind of background? And like, what was their experience? Um, and and, you know, I think personally for me, I just, I find it really interesting. So it's, it's, it works out that I, it doesn't feel like work. It actually feels like the fun part of work. Um, but that's how we did that. I will say that earlier this year, my goal was, I was in India in January and we, we visited a few farms because I would really like to, so anyone listening to this, I would really like to directly source our jaggery um, from, you know, a good farm in India. And we were, we were introduced to a farm in South India that we went and visited and their jaggery was amazing and great people, very small farm, um, had been doing organic farming for a long time, um, in their family. And it was crazy because I found a place that had the product I wanted. Um, they wanted to export. They're very small, so they didn't really have any of the licensing. Um, 
but it's really hard to import sugar in the U.S. And I don't know if you know a lot about this, but just with the sugar lobby in America. So I learned so much. Oh my God. I spent February and March, like sugar and jaggery was like the bane of my existence. I was like, how do I bring this here? Like, it's so good. Like, how do I bring it here without like just the tariffs and like the import taxes and all that are so insane unless you're bringing like containers of this product in. And really I was learning a lot about how, you know, in America, we really want to have sugar from the sugar cane plantations in like Florida and like in, in Southern, in the Southern U S and like, there's a lot of, there's a whole bunch of stuff around that, right? Like we could get into a whole conversation about sugar cane in the U S and sugar cane farming. And I felt like I was going through this rabbit hole where I was like, so everyone in the world knows that America has a sugar issue. Like we consume way too much sugar. We're allowed to consume way too much sugar. We consume way too much bad sugar. And really, I mean, it's because it's so cheap. Um, and I think the reason why it's hard to import a good amount of like raw sugar from anywhere else is because that would really mess with the prices of our sugar. And so it was cool getting to learn about all that. Um, but that just, you know, it's just like a whole different, like a whole different thing. But when you ask me about like sourcing, it's like, I got to learn something really cool. And also like, I don't know how we're going to get jaggery, but, um, it'll happen. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that, that was really interesting for me. So I just want to say, I did not know there was a sugar lobby. So like my mind is kind of blown right now. And I feel like that is the HBO, like mini documentary series that I actually want to watch and that I actually need like right now. And I'm wishing you all the best with like your draggery hunt. Um, but also you mentioned that like, you don't want to sell one shirt try. I will do that for you. Um, so good top notch it's incredible um this past summer like one of my favorite drinks that I kid you not I drink almost every single day was half lemonade half one start chai sweetened chai concentrate with like um the concentrate in ice cube form like great so yummy so delicious so you don't want to sell it but I will absolutely sell it for you on this episode it's incredible um, but thank you for all of that. And again, I just feel like I almost want to bring you back for a part two, just so we can dive into just like all these like intricacies and nuances that you brought up. But I know that we are in the closing of our time. So I do want to end on just like one final set of questions. And I really love thinking about Chai as being a case study for thinking through just like all the things we've been talking about in terms of like roots and origins and sourcing and I almost have like a two-part closing question for you and the first question being just based off all of your work with One Start Chai and rekindling this kinship and relationship to Chai um, for you beyond Chai but when it comes to anything for you what do you see as being the consequences and the dangers that come with not knowing the roots of something? Like what happens when we erase sort of the origins of something for you? Like what do we risk and what do we potentially fall into when that happens? 
And then also through this work and through this rekindling, what have you learned about like reaching back towards your origins and reaching back towards your roots? And for you, why is that work so essential for all of us to do? Especially right now, we're all at home, which again is the site for many of us as far as like being the place where like that these are our origins and this place is on the site of our roots. So yeah, again, what happens when we erase our roots and then why is it so important to like forage for them and rediscover them? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. I hope I'm able to answer it properly, but um, it's funny that you bring that up because we, you know, and we're talking about home, right? So when in this particular year, when COVID started, um, our business kind of halted because most of our business last year was coffee shops and we do e-commerce, but it's a small part of our business. And so there was literally a day where everyone stopped ordering because everyone closed down. And so for me, it was like, okay, well, our customer is not at the coffee shop anymore. Our customer is at home. And for me, starting out, you know, one stripe, I always kind of felt like an imposter because I was like, okay, I'm, I'm trying to do this really authentic thing and I'm trying to make it taste better, but like I'm doing a concentrate. A concentrate is like the least traditional way of making chai. Like this, this really, it's like, it's like really hard to like, you know, and it was like, you'd have to explain to people, well, it's because, you know, it's for coffee shops. Right. So my parents were like, why would you make a concentrate? Why wouldn't you just make chai? Like, it's not that hard. And it was, it was like this concept. Right. And so I, I remember I was always like, I, I'm never going to be doing this company or myself justice if I don't really actually teach people how to make chai the way I would make it at home. Right. And so, you know, this year posed this awesome opportunity in a really weird way where it's like, well, everyone's at home and I've always wanted to do a blend and I've always wanted to show people how to like make chai at home. And so we launched our, our, um, Chinese at home blend this summer. And I was really nervous, but it's really kind of based off of like my recipe and how I make chai and like, with like a little bit of nuance from like my, how my mom does it. And people, people loved it. Like they loved it and they loved, they it just, cause it was something like everyone is at home. They're like, I want to learn something new. Like I want to learn something I don't know how to do. And so it was this great opportunity to do that. And then a couple months later, we launched our turmeric blend, which is called It's Healthy Dude. And that was really interesting because, and I think it kind of ties back to your question where, you know, so in like 2014, 2015, like golden milk became like the like star child. Everyone was talking about golden milk and you'd see golden milk lattes everywhere. Um, and it was like turmeric, 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 and like very goopy and very like cool. And everybody that I know was like, wait, people are paying for this? Like, what? Like our moms forced us to drink this when we were little. Like this is not a recreational fun drink. This is medicine. Um, and, and that's my memory of like a turmeric latte is literally just like haldi dude, which means turmeric milk in Hindi. And like, if I ever coughed in my house, it was like, my mom was like, okay, haldi dude tonight. Like you're gonna have to drink it. And like, for a kid, like turmeric is a very, very, very acquired taste. I feel like um, it, it is. It's it's very earthy, and it's and it's and it's weird because like 
you as a kid like I was like oh I don't want to drink it like please like do I have to like it was like kind of like this horror thing where I was like I hope she forgets like I don't want to drink it um because it was medicine that's that's all it was and, and when you view something as medicine you're kind of like oh, I don't really like it and so growing up and seeing the string that's like medicine it's very Indian because turmeric is very ancient to India is kind of like okay, so wait, people are paying, like, $9 for Hollywood, like, that's, that's so weird, like, why, and that, for, for the first time ever, it truly felt like, wow, this thing is being co-opted, like, just very, like, in front of our eyes, and so when we came up with this blend, and, and I, and I kind of knew from, like, early on that, like, one day, like, it just makes sense for our chai company to also have a turmeric product, like, that's that's like the trajectory that you would go in right but I never wanted to do it because I was always like I don't want to make a turmeric concentrate like why do you that would just water down the drink like that doesn't make any sense like it's just turmeric and milk like you don't you don't need water um and so this year I was like you know what like let's just do Hollywood. let's make it a powder blend um and let's let's also like sell it to coffee shops and let's it's almost like being using it like matcha um except you don't have to whisk it and so it was awesome because I was like well what do we call it and I was like we have to call it healthy dude like we cannot hide behind this terrible name golden milk it is very very not unique and it doesn't inspire it's just not it's just golden it's just like the worst name ever and I was like well we have we just have to call it healthy dude like whatever we'll call it it's holy dude and because I felt like every time I saw turmeric latte on a menu I'd be like oh, it's holy dude like that was the sentiment and I was like we got to make that like that's the sentiment that's going to go on the bag and and I was really nervous because I was like okay no, most people don't know what that means like that is really really like that is really an unapproachable like if we're talking about approachability um, and I was like, well, it's okay. We'll put a subtext that says like turmeric latte blend. Um, and, and that was kind of this moment where it was like, okay, do you, do you take the easy way out? And do you also fall into this trend of like, not, you know, approaching and not, uh, approaching your roots like head on? Um, are we going to own this thing or are we going to like pretend like we own this thing? And so I felt like I was like, well, if I just call this golden milk, then like, I can't really own this thing because that's not what I call this drink. That's not what this drink is to me. And so for me, I was like, this is whatever. Nobody knows what this means. Like, fine. There's a, there's a subset of people who are going to know what this means and they're going to be really appreciative and they're going to love it. And they're going to be like, oh my God, I can't believe this is Hollywood on this bag. How cool. And I was like, well, there's going to be a whole bunch of people who are not going to know what it means, but you know what? Like, we'll write the meaning on the bag. Like, this is such a great opportunity to educate. This is such a great opportunity to like build those bridges and build those relationships. Right. And so that's kind of how we took it. And like, people loved it. I had people messaging me saying, I'm going to eliminate golden milk from my vocabulary. I'm only going to call it it's healthy food. And like coffee shops were like, how do you pronounce it? Is it healthy? Like, is it healthy dude? Like, I want to make sure because like, we kind of want to put that on our menu. And I'm like, oh my God, if I walk into a coffee shop and their menu says healthy dude, I will like die and go to heaven. Like this, it, it would just feel so good to be able to do that because representation matters and feeling like, you know, you, you are represented on that menu. Um, it, you know, if, 
and I think of a lot of things in terms of like specialty coffee, right? In specialty coffee, you know, there's, you got your lattes, your cortados, your macchiatos, and like as baristas, I mean, those are not, those, that's, the average person doesn't know what a macchiato is, but like you put it on your menu because you know that that's, that's, that's the correct thing. And like, as a barista, like, I know you're going to have that one customer that thinks a caramel macchiato that they get at Starbucks, which is this big, you know, that's what they're trying to order. That's what they think is on your menu, but really a macchiato is so small and there's no sugar in it. And so they're going to be wildly disappointed. And then you're going to be like, I wish they knew what a macchiato was. And really it's like, if you're going to, if you expect people to know what these things are, then like, let's call the rest of the things on your menu, what they really are. And, and I, and I think that worked out really well. And I think that, you know, the context behind food is really, really important. And there's no way that we can know the context around every single thing. We live in a very unique country that is so diverse. And so I think that we owe it to ourselves to learn about each other because I think as humans, we're creatures of evolution. And there's no, you can't evolve if you're not willing to learn and change your ways and be open. And so I think that like, you know, for me, it was like, yeah, you could drink chai or you could drink chai and know what chai is. And you could be aware that there's a colonial context in there. And doesn't mean you have to feel bad about it, but it's cool if you know about it. It's it's definitely interesting. Um, and, and, and that's how you're, like, that's how, I don't know. I just think that <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm clearly getting emotional here, but um, yeah, I, th- I think it's, I think it's important. And I think like, there's a lot of people, um, especially like, you know, there's a lot of people who are, who consume foods that are different than the mainstream American foods. And I think that we're in, we're living in a time where everyone is trying to tell their story and they are trying to share like, you know, what, what happened in their kitchens and what happened in their homes and like, what are their roots? And I think that we're, we're ripe for education all around. Like we have this opportunity to learn all these things. Like, you know, I, I recently wrote something for Fresh Cup magazine and it's, it's literally the the title of that piece was the case against golden milk. And it kind of talked a lot about all this stuff. And, you know, it's like, if, you know, if we're able to, you know, pronounce gnocchi and we're able to like, you know, all these like European foods, if, if we're able to like use them in our day to days, then like, we should be able to say it's, say healthy food. And we should be able to like, we should be open to those things instead of just putting this blanket of golden milk over it. Like, let's really dive into like, what is this thing? Um, and and I just, I think that's really important. I don't know how we're going to solve that. Um, I think that there are amazing companies popping up every day that are literally like there to like educate and to share their kind of their experience. And I think that we should just, imp- we should embrace companies like that. Cause I think that that is really important um, for us as humans to just grow. Thank you for all of that. And just thank you for 
Um, I always love talking about like the act of like remembering and archive making. And I think so often just like women, especially women of color are our best archivists who are constantly doing the work of, I would say like seed keeping, but like in a very literal way, but also like a very metaphorical way of like really being the ones to really, again, take us back to our roots, keep those seeds, keep them moving and circulating throughout generations, throughout time to come. So just thank you so much for doing that work and just giving us a glimpse into that work and just like really elevating why um, we all should be doing that sort of like symbolic or literal seed keeping of our own and just again, foraging for our roots, foraging for our origins. Um, I think there's so much beauty that can be found when we do that. And I think you've offered such an excellent case study. So thank you for taking out the time to just like chat with me about all of this. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. This was great. It like really got, you know, um, got my wheels turning just thinking about more stuff. So it's, uh, I would, I would much rather be talking and thinking about this than everything else we're about to go back to. Thank you for listening to Loam Listen. Again, I'm your host, Amirio Freeman. A huge thanks to Isaac Selk for editing and music. Also, a huge thanks to all of you, the Loam listeners. Thank you for tuning in over the past few months for juicy, dynamic conversations on how home can fuel our creative and political spirits. It's been a truly humbling honor to bring these conversations to you wherever you may be listening from. Loam Listen will be taking a break in December but we'll be back at the top of the new year for more Lomi chats with some of our favorite artists, advocates, and more. And next year, we'll be thinking through some new themes, birth, matriarchy, mothering, and I can't wait. Until next time.